Welcome into In This Corner with the Brian Campbell. This is the Professional Wrestling Edition. Now me, I'm the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and let me tell you about the last seven days of my life. I just got back from the ATL after covering the college football playoff for CBS Sports. That's right, company paid travel, company paid food, company paid entertainment, my $350 winter jacket that I bought for those 19 degrees days, didn't need it. The $97 jeans I bought, didn't need those either. That's right. I'm returning both later today for the money because unlike our great friend, handsome Nick Costas, I do not need expensive clothing to justify my existence. That said, I am still, like him, a petty, insecure, soon-to-be little man who needs your validation. And you can give that to me by telling me how right I am about sports and professional wrestling on Twitter at Silverstein Adam. And as always, I am joined by the man whose name is on the marquee. Uh, come on. He is the icon. Uh, br- bring it. He is the main event. My man, yeah. He is the showstopper. Uh, one time? He is the whole effing show. Here we go. He is the bod that runs the pod. Stay hyped. He is the mast that guides the cast. Come on. You know his name, damn it. He is the Brian Campbell. Oh, yeah. Wow. Twilight Zone version here. But still, the motto remains the same. You're going to want to do yourselves a favor and get some of this. Uh, wow. We, uh, you won't be hearing uh, <laughs> Handsome Nick Costos today, but the Silver King definitely played the part today. But you know what we're bringing to you. We reach for the blade, we swipe vertically, and we hit you with another crimson dose of that performance-enhancing audio. The Brian Campbell is, in fact, the voice that you hear, ready to unload yet another loaded episode set to provide the answer to the question that wrestling fans have wanted to know for years. Can't get enough of that soundbite. Don't know what it means. Don't want to explore it further. Just can't get enough of what that soundbite is telling me. But to get serious for a moment, we know Handsome Nick continues his CC sabbatical ahead of his triumphant return for the Rumble. We wish him well. You can follow him at the Costos and pump up his libido there. But we will carry the load on our own. And there's one man sitting next to me who doesn't simply watch or listen to pro wrestling. He, in fact, hears it. I can hear Jimmy. No, no, I can hear Jimmy. Yes, I can. He's the Silver King, Adam Silverstein. Uh, Catching me off guard with the intro, but I liked it. I liked it there. BC, let's not waste much time. We have a loaded episode. We got a surprise for them. A little bit later on, we're gonna give him a sit down with WWE Hall of Famer Mick Foley. We, we, you know, we, 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 I know we were teasing the bag early on in the show. I thought it was gonna be a surprise later. I mean, on. you know I what was... happens on the show if you tease the bag, you get the mess. Mick's gonna bring that mess. Talking Jason Jordan, talking Daniel Bryan, what advice he would give. We got a lot of good stuff going on here. But you're down there in sunny South Florida. Let's get this show started. I'm, I'm freezing up here in CT. Come on, hit the music. This is the main event. All right, BC Raw Monday night was really, really good. I mean, they competed head-to-head with the college football playoff. I did not see it live. I was obviously, as I said earlier, in the ATL enjoying one of the greatest games I had ever seen, at least one of the greatest finishes I've ever seen. But BC, you watched it live. Talk to me. What was your biggest takeaway moment from an explosive, legitimately good three hours of Monday Night Raw? Uh, Fired up, like right now. Like, fired. I mean... 
you know, my macro point is just like you said, they're competing. And while last week I felt like they went for it to compete and they fell a little bit short, this week Adam had that juice. It had that energy. It produced that under juice that it wasn't like, I'm not going to go as far as say Attitude Era-esque, but it had that cohesiveness from segment to segment where the juice just kept rising. And my biggest takeaway is... They may have fixed Braun Strowman, and I'm not even sh- this this Kane Braun Strowman feud. And by the way, I'm not even sure Braun Strowman was actually the biggest headline from the show. You could argue that three, even four guys, sort of reached for that one night brass ring to make it their show, including the Miz. But Adam, how do you not talk about anything else than Braun Strowman throwing a grappling hook and pulling down a girder? And it was another one of those, you know, silly B action movie moments. But hell yeah, it worked. And on a larger scale, like I mentioned. It didn't fix the Kane storyline, but it did have me enjoy myself and go, okay, WWE, what do you have for me next? I'm actually not going to sit here and open my show complaining that 50-year-old Kane is back on my TV, but what do you have for me next? Because that's how you book a rare monster, like a once-in-a-generation guy like Braun Strowman. Yeah, it was too few and far between the moments that we've really gotten with Braun because Braun dominating Kane for a moment or two um, in and around the ring like he did a couple weeks ago. Like, great. Like, he should dominate a 50-year-old, you know, guy who's well past his prime and shouldn't really be in the main event picture whatsoever. But for him to do that in that scenario, kind of out of the blue, because you you had Lesnar kind of calling out Kane, and that whole situation happened, um, and then kind of just walking backstage, and Kane starts the attack, and that's great. And, And that little attack out of nowhere and then brawling to the back on its own was pretty good. But then you throw Braun Strowman in as the surprise attacker off camera. And then, of course, the grappling hook spot, as you mentioned. Calling it Attitude Era-esque the entire Raw show is completely fair. This moment was also one of those Attitude Era moments. Don't forget, what was it? King chased Shane McMahon backstage and, and Shane threw him into an incinerator and turned it on. Like These things happen in WWE. And <laughs> this one is at least one of the more believable moments. Versus a guy getting murdered by a trash compactor. This worked for me in every manner because you believe, yeah, someone like Braun probably does know how to use a grappling hook and probably would hit it on the first try and definitely has the strength to pull it down. All right, I got great analysis. And I got questions. I got to just cut you off because I'm so excited to ask this question of how they film this. Now, I kind of let the cat out of the bag when I visited the WWE archives last year in Connecticut when I saw the body bag of Roman Reigns, the dummy they used that time that Braun flipped the stretcher from Roman. So we know that like when they tipped the ambulance, when they did that, that's all pre-recorded stuff using camera angles. Look, there's a, there's a place for that in pro wrestling. I love it. I love this week, but Adam legitimately, I want to know a, how, how they actually filmed that grappling hook throw. Like, was that a, a, Hey, we're just going to turn on the cameras and see if Braun can perfectly land this and B, were we supposed to believe that that girder fell on the bodies? Because I'm of the belief we're, we're to believe that it didn't crush Kane and Lesnar. Because then I might have a little bit more, you know, I'd have some issue with it. I'm of the belief that it sort of fell perfectly and missed them. Where do you stand? Well, in terms of the grappling hook spot, I assume they just gave him one and go, you know, figure this out. And eventually they got the shot they needed. Um, so I, I don't know. But also with the grappling hook, I'm not, listen, I'm, I'm no pro with grappling hooks here. But I would guess if I if I learned how to throw it a couple times, you probably get it hooked on something. I don't know. A guy that um, size can do anything. Let's be honest, right? And, and yeah, and and Braun's also way closer to the top of that structure than like I am. You know, I'm I'm coming from five eight, five nine. Here, Braun. You know, he's it's much easier of a target for him. Um, 
I think we are supposed to, in kayfabe, think it fell on both of them. Now, that's not to say it directly fell on and crushed both of them, but you're not stretching Brock Lesnar out of that area just because he went headfirst into a road That's kick. the point right I mean, there. Yeah. And that was a good spot by Brock. Let's not kind of gloss over that. He took a big bump there, uh, you know, himself, throwing himself into those things. One fell. The one thing I noticed from – I, I kind of want to get off the, you know, whether what we're supposed to believe in kayfabe because it doesn't really matter. They both really got hurt. The one thing I noticed is both tables, the one that Kane went through and the one that Brock went through, collapsed insanely easily, like way easier than the tables they put <laughs> out by the ring. Like a road case just like touched it and it broke in half. Kane's body touched it and it just shattered. Like, so it, for me, that ha- that was the suspension of disbelief part. But All right, I, I won't mean, get caught on I that, thought, but I want to hit you up with one thing. You said the Lesnar spot was good. Let's not gloss over. I want to pause you and say, no, the Lesnar spots were great. And I think, Adam, his willingness to sell both physically and then verbally, which was genius, as they put him on the stretcher, they put him in the yes. ambulance, and he's saying, Paul, no, 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 like, you know, get me out of here. I thought that actually, Adam, made that segment go from, I want to say, a big show Braun Strowman, let's superplex to break the ring, hey, that was fun segment, to, like I said off the top, they actually have me interested in an angle that I that was really one of the most trolling, anger-producing angles that I've you know commented on in recent memory, and I think Lesnar was the key because when he's engaged and he sells for people like he did for AJ in that match that I called the match of the year last year, he's just a different level of performer, and I felt that in the segment. Did you get those feels? I mean, when he got thrown in that road case and went through that table, it looked like that was legit. I, maybe the table broke easily, but a road case hit him in the top of the head. I mean, he really took a bump there. Oh yeah, the road case definitely fell on him. I would, I would say the work Brock Lesnar has done from Survivor Series to present is the best we've seen from him in maybe this current run. And I say that knowing he beat the Undertaker and you know he had matched with Reigns and he was in that main event, the Triple Threat. What ended up being a Triple Threat main event with Rollins. This is the best Brock Lesnar I've seen. And this goes back to what we talked about in the year-end uh, you know recap when we were saying, hey. My biggest issue with Braun, I don't want you on TV if you're just going to stand in the ring next to Paul Heyman. He's not doing that. He's getting involved in action. You don't have to have a match, but you need to physically be involved. That's why you are being paid millions of dollars, because you're a massive human being who can do awesome things and have awesome things be done to you as well. Well, look, this normally when we have a main event, we open with our first point. A lot of times it's one angle, one thing. But this is one of those rare times, Adam, where it's like the whole damn Raw show is our main event. And I loved what happened with Strowman, but I loved The Miz returning with a bang. And, like, you really felt his absence last few weeks, you know? You really started to feel it. And you realize that when he comes back and he takes over the show. And, yeah, maybe it was the Miz TV segment was a little bit hokey there, and I'm— I'm becoming more hit or miss on Bo Dallas and Curtis Axel than I was originally, but but hush that point for a second. Him coming back and coming full circle and picking the bones of Reigns late got me fired up for where Miz Reigns is headed as they reactivate it, and the fact that they're now booking an IC title rematch on the Raw 25 episode, brilliant in my mind, because this has potential to be a monster feud, whether it's another one-off through Rumble and they both go their separate ways to Mania like we suspect or not. This is big, and Miz reached for the damn brass ring this week. He really tried to be the episode's MVP. It's not like we don't spend enough time saying how good he is, but it was just another wake-up call for that. Well, you know how few occasions, despite Miz being so damn good and so damn over, you know how rare it is for him to actually close Raw as like the... as the last thing you see, it doesn't happen. And that's not fair, really. I mean, I don't really know 
if there's a better way to put it, I think what we saw with Miz coming back, he did so many things that were classic heel, yet the crowd loves him so much now over the last year or so that he still gives them the nods to say, yeah, I'm a heel, but you can still like me in that, you know, Stone Cold Yeah, Steve what Austin chance did he get? He got, like, two positive, consistent chants of, like, thank you, Miz, and we missed you or something like that? Yeah, stuff like that. He He's really, really good. It's funny because usually the way things work is you like wrestlers for their in-ring ability, and people don't give them enough credit because their character isn't totally over. So, you know, eventually they, they pick it up, and then all of a sudden they get over with everyone. Rusev's a good example of that. In-ring, awesome dude. Character wasn't really over, didn't really work. Miz is kind of the opposite. In ring, he's pretty good. I, I wouldn't say he's a amazing wrestler. He he's very good. He hides his limitations in, in yes. this adult phase of his career very well. He yes, and he, he's definitely limited. But his character is so damn over that fans like him so much for what he's doing on the mic that the rest of it doesn't even matter. You can put him in a match with Reigns; it's gonna be pretty damn good, and it's gonna work. I think you know we were talking. Hey, how does Reigns eventually drop the IC title. Does he take it into WrestleMania and go one-on-one with Brock? Like, what happens there? I think Miz is so hot and so over now that you can actually have Reigns drop it to him. Obviously, not in the most clean fashion, but you can have him drop it to him and not hurt Reigns. Oh, no doubt no doubt about it. I want to make one final point on Miz because we've got a lot to talk about in this lead-off of the main yeah. event. Every time I'm talking about how I'm going to reinvent somebody, we've, we've had the, the Dolph Ziggler discussion. I always say, put him in a suit. Put him in a fitting pinstripe suit or whatever, three-piece suit, and look at what it does. I think that's a part of an underrated part of Miz's comeback in 2016 and 2017 is his commitment to, to this professional look, the same look that Ric Flair wore, the same look that, that you know mid-2000s Jericho wore. There's something to that, Adam, where it brings class. And obviously, Maurice played a big part in his shoulder in this, relaunch, in this you know renaissance run of him but Miz in these suits works for me maybe maybe it's just me and my sartorial sense but it works and it's not just that they stick with the gimmick in real life he literally was off shooting a movie and doing promo work so the excuse isn't he got hurt while he's actually going to do a movie which is what you see for Becky Lynch and some of these other people he his character fits his real life persona he comes back with a new haircut a new look every single time his style is different he came back one time you know, wearing those weird scarves around his neck. With I don't even know what, what you call that thing. It was ugly and weird, but I guess it was in style in Europe or something. Now he's in the finely tailored suit with the really short crew cut type hair. So he continues to adapt and change his character from his look, from his real life success. And it all just plays into someone who's growing in a major way on Raw. Now, like you said, BC, a lot happened on Raw. Let's move on to the third part of this first part of our main event, uh, Monday Night Raw, big episode. The Balor Club officially, I don't even want to say reformed because it's the first time for the Balor Club formed. And the way you wrote it down here is they got a big heel push on Monday night. I don't know if I agree with that terminology, but I'm going to let you explain yourself. All right. So this is my feel spot, right? Like we, we closed the show with a feel spot. This was too big to, to close the show. You had a cup, you know, you actually, you know, inside baseball were like, no, we got to get that up even higher. And I'm like, you're damn right. Because this to me was actually the part of Raw that I you know, felt the most joy that I that I had the most, you know, because you see the joy in Finn's face. You see the reunion of the Balor Club in a formation of something within WWE that we felt like we couldn't have. So that's all part of why it's amazing. It gives Finn the backup that he needs. It allows the good brothers who never get used properly to get a big shine. But you're, I, what I mentioned about this heel is interesting because Gallows and Anderson last week when they brought these guys together got babyface love. Gallows hot tagged in like he was a babyface. I felt like this week 
WWE did two things. They wanted to establish a heel persona, and I think you saw that when Finn came out and made that joke because the opening segment, the Balor Club runs in on Reigns, Rollins, and Jason Jordan, and Finn ripped Jason Jordan and made a Kurt Angle, you know, fatherless type of joke, and he did it in a Prince Devitt, NJPW, leader of yeah. the Bullet Club sort of way that really gave me the announcement, this is going to be heel fun, and this is going to be the best version of Finn Balor we've ever seen on WWE because it's the real him, the guy he wants to be in the ring, and maybe even more importantly here, Adam, bigger than 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 just the heel thing is like, it goes back to that first point, like, we're getting what we want, and this feels rushed, and I don't know the real decision-making behind it, but this is something that's awesome, and they're recognizing the history of NJPW. There was like 15 to 20 Easter eggs they dropped in. They even showed pictures of the Balor Club in the, fa- in the, in the past, and it's almost like WWE is not going to use the words the Bullet Club, but they're going to try to make us believe that it was the Balor Club all along and that it was this group of guys who started it, which is partially true. So I have a couple points. So, yes, they're definitely going in a more heel direction with them, which is good because that's where Finn shines, as you mentioned. But I don't really take them as being heels, especially not when they're getting a crowd reaction like they have. So to me, it's more anti-authority, anti-typical baby face, you know, a little harder edge, kind of like WWE Attitude Era. That This is part of why the show had that Attitude Era-esque feel to it. But... They also are going to go ahead and break my three-man faction rule, which I hate how literally every single faction in WWE is three people. And to me, <laughs> those aren't factions. They're just groups, okay? So this is another one. The difference is this one's actually natural. Like this one in the New Day, I'm okay with those. Every other one, get some more dudes behind you and like be a real faction and cause some chaos. And even in the Balor Club BC, really what would behoove them most is to grow and to actually be a faction with Finn leading, uh, Gallows and Anderson being his lieutenants, and then guys underneath them. If you want to rush in, I know NXT has a talent problem right now in terms of big-name dudes. If they want to rush Undisputed Era to the main roster and throw them in the Balor Club as three more dudes, I'm okay with it. They need this thing to grow and actually be a faction because right now it's just another three-person team, and the life of that only goes so far. It's, you know, the shield was so damn over and those guys eventually broke off into singles competitors. But with these three, I don't know how far you can go with them. And that concerns me. Well, that's fair. Okay, that's fair. But the timing is why it's great. It's counter programming to the real Bullet Club, but it's WWE sneak away of saying we have the actual originators of the Bullet Club. So like I said, we're going to pretend that they're called the Balor Club. And you're you're kind of programming to the hottest thing outside of WWE at the moment during the exact, you know, week, week and a half period of Wrestle Kingdom when it's getting its biggest shine. So it felt forced in how they came together, but it's smart. It's smart counter programming because they can do the two sweet where legally the bull club guys can't. So it's, it's you know, it's it's here's you know what? It's not Adam real quick. It's not Vince saying here's something that worked outside of WWE. So let's bastardize it and WWE eyes it and put it in the microwave and McDonald's toy eyes it no this was like the rare time where he's going okay this is something that worked elsewhere let's roll it out and see if we can use it now in competition and that's the key word competition because right now revolution whether you believe in me or believe in it or not this feels like a counter move we don't have anything countering anything for 15 20 years in pro wrestling this is why we're excited right now 
I feel like it's too soon to say Vince hasn't ruined this because it literally just happened. So like, let's see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Um, I also want to make the point you're talking about counter programming to the bullet club and so on and so forth. Did you notice that Corey Graves on not just one, but on two occasions said, these are the elite <laughs> referring to Balor Gallows and Anderson. He said it like initially when they walked to the ring and he said it later in the show as well. I kind of love that. Like if you're going to jab them with the two sweet and you're going to mention the elite and obviously the end, not only did they mention NJPW, they mentioned the IWGP title specifically called it out. And then, like you said, a lot of the wrestlers in New Japan wrestlers as well. So I thought it was nice. It's it's an, it's something nice to reach out to all the viewers who you know are knowledgeable about what's going on elsewhere. And it also shows you that WWE is not scared one bit about NGPW or anything else that's going on. Because there was a while when WCW started threatening them early, um, once they brought Hogan and, and Nash and, and all those guys over, where WWE refused to mention them on television, would not recognize their existence. And then all of a sudden it got to the point where they were getting threatened and they kind of felt like, we don't just need to counter-program them, we need to crap on them as well. And they're not doing that here. They're giving NGPW a lot of respect. I think that's fair. And I think it's it's great for wrestling fans of both because if you hate the Bullet Club and the Bucks and everything that's going on over there, then you can use these little jabs as fuel for that. But if you're like me who loves that, then it's like them recognizing it as these little Easter eggs. And I think overall, Adam, I think Vince wants the competition. I think Vince wants what I want, a revolution. And you can argue conspiracy theories all you want. We can go in multiple directions on Jericho and, you know, was Vince supported for this reason or that, not that reason. But I personally think this is why we're seeing these football rumors break up with Vince right now. He's a little bit bored. You can argue he should have been bored a decade ago. He's bored now. He wants real competition. I think he kind of wants this revolution to work so that he could bring out his best guns. I sure hope it happens that way. You're saying he's bored, brother? Yeah, I mean, come on. That's, that's the only way to say it. I'm bored, brother. All right, well, I'm not bored because Raw was awesome, but there's one more topic we need to talk about from the show. And no, it's not Woken Matt Hardy and the bastardization of that. What it is is Jason Jordan, along with Roman Reigns and Seth Rollins. I'm not going to break down everything that happened on Raw. We're going to assume you watched it. BC, are you just falling in love with Jason Jordan like I am? Because he's incredible. Yeah, he's doing great. He's getting better every week. You're going to hear Mick Foley talk about him later in the show. I think, though, my biggest, my bigger takeaway point and how he specifically cost Reigns and Rollins in that six-man tag main event is what that moment, Adam, meant for the future. Because we think we know where Jordan is headed, or I think I do. I think he's headed toward a heel turn, a big mania. Yeah. The, the closure of this feud through mania, which may include him wrestling Kurt Angle or may include him... I, or Kurt Angle turning. I'm not sure where it's going, but I, I guess that side. But the inclusion of him with the other biggest thing going on in WWE right now, the Shield reunion, which obviously has a hole in it with Ambrose being injured, is so brilliant. It's so on the fly, Vince at his best type booking for all the crap we give Vince. You're you're taking something that's so hot and you're putting it in the middle of something that's hotter. It's it works so well. But my like I said about the tease of where this is going, is. I think it's fair to ask yourself, is Jordan instead headed to Mania in some form of angle involving the Shield? Maybe Reigns wouldn't be a part of that because he's going to have bigger plans. But is Jordan going to be the one that blows up the Shield? That's really my big big question now after seeing this angle. Is Ambrose going to come back and do that heel turn that we all want? And is the Shield going to be 
Rollins, Ambrose, and Jason Jordan moving forward as babyface Reigns get the boot. I'm just saying there's a lot of potential here now, Adam, that I didn't fully realize until a little bit of the of the feels I caught from this main event. I don't know. You're you're crazy, man. Like you're you're crazy. I I'm not really down for that version um of Jason Jordan in the shield. And no, he might help either break them up or help them disintegrate with Dean Ambrose not there. But what I initially thought was when they threw Jordan with them was they would like Jordan so much as in as an in-ring worker and someone who helps them win that Dean Ambrose gets jealous when he comes back and hey you guys forget about me that easily it's an easy heel turn you know so on and so forth right now I'm just really curious where things are going to stand going into WrestleMania because there's a lot of different things you could do I think there's a Jason Jordan Seth Rollins program you can have there's a Jason Jordan Roman Reigns program you can have the problem there Roman Reigns ain't fighting Jason Jordan at WrestleMania. He's fighting Brock Lesnar. So, so wait, wait, one second insertion. Uh, but could he? Could Roman Reigns fight new Shield leader Jason Jordan at SummerSlam? And can this be the beginning? Because look at what, what leader Jason Jordan. What Jason Jordan might be to WWE is the heel version of Roman Reigns that everybody wants. Everybody wants Roman to turn heel. WWE won't for probably for business reasons. So we'll just turn Jason Jordan heel, have him be the alter ego of Reigns, and have them fight against yeah. each other for control of the shield. I know I'm all over the place right now, but tell yeah. me that didn't activate something. Come I on. mean, it's kind of cool, but like he's way more of just a pest and a nuisance right now than he is someone who's coming in and dominating the team. True, true. You know, So to me, that doesn't necessarily fit that role. What I will say, and this is just a byproduct of injuries, illnesses, um, you know, booking that was maybe has gone awry a little bit. But what WWE has wound up doing is putting Seth Rollins, obviously Jason Jordan, Roman Reigns, the bar and whoever else they want to throw in with the bar into matches on every single episode of Raw for the last like two, three months. And no matter the combination, the matches have been incredible. Like the bar is great. Um, Reigns, Rollins, Ambrose, Jordan, like whoever whatever the Miz, whatever mix that they've put together, the storyline maybe has not always made sense or come to fruition the way we've wanted it to, but the matches have been very good. And when we talk about this Raw as a whole and how good the storylines were on the entire show, this episode of Raw, outside of this match, in my opinion, the match quality was vastly down. Vastly down? This week. It was, it was, but but I guess something, it may come down to preference, though, because I've told you on this show a bunch of times that I'd rather not have 25-minute awesome matches that don't necessarily mean anything, and sure. I'm a raw Nitro guy who likes roll out the ball for 15 minutes and have a dialogue segment. Even if it's not great for 15 minutes, that's what keeps me intrigued and involved where I'm going to fast-forward through matches. So I'll take down match quality. I'll take less matches because... Monday night is for storylines, Adam. They say Saturday is for the boys or whatever that line is. Sunday night is for the boys when they wrestle in the ring. Okay, that's when real wrestling should happen, not on Monday night. No, I'm down with that completely. I'm just saying we had been praising match quality because we had nothing else to praise on Raw over the last few weeks. Now, and maybe I should have made that clear earlier, now we're praising actual storyline development, which you and I have been just dying for for months now, for weeks. Every single pay-per-view, it's like, Oh, this didn't make sense. What are they doing? Now there's finally a cohesive storyline weaving in and out of shows and heading towards a point at the Royal Rumble that we will see come to fruition very soon. We're in a great place. That's the bottom line. We're in a great place, Raw. Thank you. And whether it's counter-programmed to college football, whether it's counter-programmed NJPW, whether it's just, hey, new year, 
the build the mania. Let's get hot. It's the right. It's the best time to be a fan. Really, it is right from is. January first to to the first week of April. This is our time. Absolutely. And you know what? We just gave Raw a nice little uh, tongue bath there. So let's move on to the second part of our main event, BC. All signs are pointing to Chris Jericho, Alpha, Y2J, whatever you want to call him these days, staying with NJPW on some sort of extended schedule. Now, we don't know whether it's just going to be one more match with Tetsuya Naito at Long Beach for that U.S. show that they're doing. I think it's in March. Um, But he's definitely there and not in WWE, at least for the Royal Rumble and perhaps a little bit longer. So, BC, what's your take on everything that's transpired coming out of Wrestle Kingdom? And where do you think we're going here with Chris Jericho? I don't want to be one of those guys who... We're not the kind of guys to say, we told you so, but we told you so. All right, look, I can say that, and I also can say that you heard our reaction podcast after WK12, the match against Omega, where I was like, wait, is Chris Jericho actually staying? Because this doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He, the next day at New Year Dash, which was their version of the Monday Night Raw after WrestleMania, Jericho attacked Naito, and that certainly seemed to open the floodgates, like you said, to that there's more. I really think now from that moment and the moments that have happened in the week that has followed, Adam, that we are building toward maybe it's not the full my vision of Chris Jericho as the Han Solo of the revolution, But I don't think he's going back to WWE for the Royal Rumble. I don't think he's going back to Mania. I think this year, the year that he's putting out his wrestling cruise with Ring of Honor in October, I think this is an independent year for Chris Jericho where he wants to find out how big his brand actually is. And a couple little points that support this that happened. He put out an Instagram post just two days ago with his face in the New Japan logo with the quote, maybe I'll stick around for a while, okay? Told Busted Open Radio on Monday he would like to do the Brock Lesnar idea with New Japan, end quote where he said he won't do the G1, but he'll pick his spots for the big events similar to that run Lesnar had, I think it was 05, after he got cut by the Vikings with NJPW, where he was the heavyweight champion. He did some big matches. He also told them about business on that show, Adam, saying that he personally feels responsible for bringing in 10,000 more patrons to the Tokyo Dome compared to last year for Wrestle Kingdom and seeing a 35% increase on the streaming subscriptions to NJPWWorld.com. So... Here's where it breaks down, Adam. One, I have to put the disclaimer that to get to this point, Jericho had to constantly lie to us and deceive us. So even though right now it feels like he's all in on the revolution, I could easily be getting swayed by him, and we'll see him January 28th or 29th, whatever, at the Royal Rumble. That's fully possible based on his track record. But all these points are adding up to him staying around, Adam, because that point I mentioned about business. And it kind of goes into this bonus DM slide that I want to read you from WWE Trivia T.O. He says, with Jericho competing at Wrestle Kingdom 12, there's lots of buzz about him truly being the greatest of all time. However, can you truly be considered one of the GOATs if you've never carried a company on your back at any point in your career? Is he collecting stats like Carl Malone or is he truly the best? I want to thank you for the question at WWE Trivia T.O., big follower of our show. And I want to get in a minute to where Jericho might rank after all this. But I want to use that as fuel for my point. I don't think, you know, we, I said when this fight match was announced, maybe Jericho solidified himself now as the greatest small man of all time. A guy who was a cruiserweight who built himself up to a main eventer. But I think this question is legit. He's never really been the guy outside of a feud or two. And I think there's a stigma that comes with that of not a stigma, a question that he's asked himself Am I really this big of a star, or is Vince McMahon 65% responsible for 
that I'm this big of a star. And part of it is my longevity, my smart business decisions, my knowing when to fold them, when to come in and out of WWE. I think Jericho's finding out right now, Adam, that he really is a billable, marketable commodity on his own, and he loves it. And people are telling him, which he's mentioned on his podcast and on Twitter like a thousand times, that people believe that this match was the best of his career at 47. Like he just may have had the best match of his career. I think that there's a little bit of him now that's saying, I love Vince. I exited the right way. But right now, I don't need him. He might need me more. And he loves that feeling, Adam. Yeah, I mean, if I was having a conversation with Chris and he was making that argument to me, what I would say is, well, yeah, you're now trying to market yourself after Vince just marketed you for 15 years and built you up into this. So is it you or is it the brand that Vince built that is now a free agent and able to do these things? I mean, that sounds, look, by the way, that sounds like the build to Hogan versus Vince at that. Was that WrestleMania 19? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. That's a, That's a very good point. Um, like, again, I'm not a huge rock music fan. I like hip hop and rap. But is Fo- does Fozzie get the attention it has? For the last 15 years, if Chris Jericho is not the front man, probably not. And do people care that Chris Jericho is the front man of a music group if he's not in WWE as the undisputed champion being built up by Vincent to one of the top guys in the company? Probably not. So, Jer- I mean, he can go sow his royal oats, as they would say, in coming to America and do things outside his homeland in WWE. But at, at some point, he, A, he'll be back and... I don't think there's any harm in saying that. He's not going to be in NJPW for five years. At some point, he'll be back in WWE. And he still knows where his bread is buttered, and that's in the United States. Now, to your point, BC, this is great for him. I mean, he has creative freedom. He's working with guys he's never worked with before. There's no question the in-ring match um, that he had with Kenny Omega and some of the storylines behind it were fantastic. Dave Meltzer, by the way, just rated it five stars. If you want, you can give your rating. For me, it wasn't that. It was four and a half, whatever. No point being, it was a very good match and probably a quality match that Jericho doesn't have in WWE because he's not going to do the blade job. He's not going to be cursing, throwing up middle fingers. And and the character development that you saw from Chris Jericho there is not what you've seen in WWE because he hasn't really been able to do it. So I think the question boils down to this, BC. Is it working? And how long do we think it could work in NJPW? To me, the answers are yes and for a couple months because – yeah. Unless, Chris, unless they're going to have Chris Jericho beat Tetsuya Naito or beat Kenny Omega or beat Kaz Okada, then he's just going to go and lose to four dudes. And then what is there for him there anymore? So that's, so, that's a sober I think reality. Term. The, what you did, the yeah. last part of what you just said is a sober reality. The, the shelf life is small. Let's be honest. For Like you said, so he comes back with a feud for Naito or one-off match, right? We'd love to see him against Okada. But at what point, you know, maybe, I, yeah, I'd love to see him against Cody for Cody's big show that we're going to talk about in a minute. All that. But what's left after that? He doesn't want to be doing the G1. He doesn't want to be there every week. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. But I think the key part is that relationship with Vince where he handled this so perfectly that right now for this calendar year, he doesn't need Vince. And maybe that doesn't matter to some people, but I think it matters from this sense that, like, if Vince, if this whole thing didn't happen and Vince called him to come back to do something, it would be for a one-off and it probably wouldn't matter that much. Like, 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 right. uh, Jericho said himself, it wouldn't be the main event of WrestleMania, but now he has leveraged himself so high that for him to come back to WWE, it's going to have to take Vince calling him and saying, we have something big for you now. 
for a lot of money that we're going to leverage on the celebrity you've created on your own in what you've done outside of here. And that wouldn't have been the case before. So you give Chris credit for exiting the right way by calling Vince and puffing his bags and all that. But he kind of did the equivalent of like, if he's dating somebody out of his league and he's unquestionably the B-side, yet he broke up with them at the apex of the relationship. So now that he he has all the power right now, Chris Jericho has all the power. Maybe it's a short shelf life, but he has all the power. And when you're in your late 40s and you're only going to come back to WWE for short shots anyway, this is a great spot for Jericho to be in because anytime he comes back, it's going to be monstrous. And it's not going to be to be the third guy in a six-man tag match, you know, like whatever. It's going to be something legit. I just don't think, and this is almost segueing back into that DM question, that this is all fun and games and I love it. I don't think he's a, a no doubt now a top five or top ten of all time. I think that question that at WWE Trivia T.O. still asks still holds true, and it's a little bit of a sober reality. He's never been the face of the company. He's not the face of NJPW now. He's maybe one of the best bit players of, or, or swing guys or supporting actors of all time or small guys or whatever you want to say. But I love him, and this may be the best version of him, and you can argue that, but he's not top 10, Adam. He's still historically aligned with guys well, like Kurt Ankle and Edge and Bret Hart, but he's not in the category of Hogan, Flair, Savage, Rhodes. Cena, Austin, he's not, right? Let's be honest. So, no, I'm, I'm not with you fully there. So I, I was having this conversation with Dave of the, of the Masked Man Show on Twitter. We were actually going back and forth about this very topic. I think it's insane to put Jer- Chris Jericho in someone's top five. Like, you can't do it. There's just there's seven dudes who have legitimate gripes to be top five all time, and that's not counting Vince, obviously. We're talking pure just, just wrestlers. But I think you can make a case for Chris Jericho in the bottom of the top ten because – his ability on the mic, his ability in the ring, the way he's reinvented his character consistently. He did it at WCW. He did it at WWE on a completely different level. And he did it in all in three different eras of WWE as well. And now, past his prime, he's in NJPW headlining cards. And part of that is what concerns me when it comes to his legacy and how he leaves professional wrestling. Not that things are going to go bad over there. Everything's fine. But he only has so much time left in which he's truly a marketable in-ring performer. He could come back and be Raw GM whenever he wants and do it for two years, and people would love it. It'd be great. But there's only so many matches he has left. And for him to be doing them in NJPW and to a lesser extent Ring of Honor, you know, over here, if I don't know if they co-brand that, uh, that Long Beach show or not, or if he does All In, which might have some Ring of Honor stuff going on with it. For him to be spending those last few miles doing that concerns me because there's still dudes in WWE I want to see him working and performing with. So while the quote-unquote revolution isn't happening but maybe can get kick-started soon, like it's cool that he's over there. Chris, do your two more matches. You know, fight Okada, fight Naito. And take some time, do your do your band thing. Come back to WWE, give him eighteen. He will though. He will. I think you are what you just laid out is his goal and will be the end goal for him. Final point on your top ten statement. Yes, you can argue that he's in the top ten, but I'm going to be honest. It's a hipster argument, and here's the reason why. Top ten is an upper room. It's an upper table. It's a headliner table. Like yes, the Undertaker is in there, and you can. And I've always made the argument that yeah, the Undertaker's great. He's also a B side. Head the top ten for the most part are A siders. Because The Undertaker, to me, might be one of the greatest heel monster slash B-sides of all time. I have to keep Jericho on the outside. One, because there's only 10 spots for the top 10. But B, again, that point. He's not been the alpha male 
to quote use alpha there. He's not been the alpha male face of a company, the re- the guy that fills butts and seats. He hasn't been that. He I mean, just look not to get kayfabe, not to get kayfabe on you. He beat Austin and The Rock in the same night. It was WWE undisputed. Loved champion. it. That was the high point of his career. But he doesn't have a history like the other guys do in that. And I know some of those guys had small. Savage had a smaller run as the guy. I get that. But that top ten is mostly guys who were the guy. Eleven to twenty are your edges, your angles, your Bret Hart's, who were, in my mind, are that step down. And again, there's nothing wrong with being the 13th best wrestler in the modern era. That's great. But top 10 still is a guy that you could give the ball and say, go run our damn company. And there are very few guys who you can do that. I feel like we could talk about this for hours, but, I mean, Bret Hart edge, like, easily over those guys. I know you're, you're trying to give a similar category. Easy for me. Like, not even, that's not even a question. Bret Hart and edge, come on. Like, well, okay, the problem with Jericho, though, is the argument is, the argument is based more on longevity than anything else. And I don't like when anyone's argument, whether you're talking about the Baseball Hall of Fame or whatever, is more about their longevity or their compiling. And look, Jericho's not a compiler. He's a constant reinventor. But still, the argument for him to be in top 10 is more about longevity than it is about anything else. Be honest. It's not just longevity. It's accomplishment during the the period of time that he's been doing these things. It's not like... He's just he's gold dust. OK, gold dust is a longevity argument. Oh, gold dust is great. He reinvented himself and did. I mean, gold dust really didn't reinvent himself. This is a kind of a bad argument, but that's a longevity thing. OK, the undertaker being the American badass and, and all the things he did. That's a longevity thing. Chris Jericho, you could make an argument in 2017 was the hottest wrestler in WWE in purely by crowd reaction. Every single time his music hit, every single time he had the crowd in the palm of his hands. Roman Reigns didn't have them doing that. What, one Rock caveat. Reigns didn't have them doing that. One caveat. Go ahead. His role was supporting actor, though. he was His role wasn't leading man. Not and actually. that's the, my argument. That's my whole argument right there. He's maybe the best supporting actor, right? But he's, he's not the leading plus man. now. I mean, I'm just saying about, he's... Come on. It's a, it's a longer debate for another day. We can go an hour just on that. But, hey, I, again, I'm not criticizing Jericho. I'm just saying there are limits. You do have a ceiling, all right? Everybody's got a ceiling. This isn't the Willy Wonka elevator. We can't just crash through, all right? Look, Grandpa, there's my school down there. No, not not that time. All right? I agree. Being great does not make you top 10. As you said, there's only 10 spots. But I think you can make an argument for Chris Jericho being 9, 10, 11, 12. And, and where he sits there you know, probably just depends on personal preference. BC, we have a lot more show to get to, don't we? How about we move on to Hero or Zero? All right, BC, the Undisputed Era. Guys, we're talking about NXT in one one of the main segments of the show. This is great. The Undisputed Era made a big-time statement on NXT Wednesday by laying out Sanity backstage and then taking out Roderick Strong and Aleister Black in their match due to some interference with Adam Cole there. BC Hero Zero, to whether NXT has gone ahead and fixed what at least I determined were some initial booking and presentation issues with the worst-named faction in WWE, the (laughs) Undisputed Era. We're going to have to go lightning round here for how much time we took. But yes, they have fixed this. This is a hero. And I will say, you did plant those seeds in me that something wasn't top shelf in the way that they came on. Look, it's not like Adam Cole got taller or his muscles got bigger, which was 
to be honest, was part of our issue here. But this episode was like a crowning moment from the NWO-like sort of opening, you know, promo that they did on video to the way they were booked and the way Cole as the leader was so squirmy and was a chicken crap heel at times, but then was vicious when he had the upper hand and the movie hit on Aleister Black on the chair in the center of the ring afterwards kind of cemented. I think I love these guys now. The name stinks. The T-shirt's growing on me. But these guys have a swagger and a invasion quality to them. And it's coming around, Adam. I'm all in. So I'm giving it a zero, not because I didn't think it was better. It was better. But they haven't fixed anything yet. I mean, there's still a long ways to go to make these guys a legitimate faction. That includes more people and bigger people. And I've said it from the very beginning. These are three tiny dudes. And they can get away with attacking guys from behind only so often until you need to man up and defend yourself in the ring and prove that you're a dominant faction, not just a smart faction. So they have ways to go here. The name's a zero. The hand gesture, the new hand gesture, is a zero. The guys can't even hold on to their title while using two hands to do the U and the E. Be better, WWE. You can do better than this. That said, this week, it was an improvement, so good for you. Makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Adam, number two, Hero or Zero, SmackDown Live came out this week. And um, you know what? BC says it was basically unwatchable, and they are ruining the Daniel Bryan-Shane McMahon angle because of it. Hero to Zero on my editorial from what the blue brand gave us for two hours this week. I mean, since this is the lightning round, I'm not going to go, you know, full dog here, big dog here, because you can read it on CBSSports.com, what I had to say when I tore apart the biggest zero edition of SmackDown Live that I have seen in quite some time. This feud feels like it's never ending between Shane McMahon, Daniel Bryan, Kevin Owens, Sami Zayn, and whoever else. Oh, Randy Orton, Shinsuke Nakamura, AJ Styles. It's one mishmash of crap, guys. And, And everything else on the show is completely meaningless. I yawned the entire time. SmackDown's terrible. They've ruined SmackDown. Uh, partly to make Raw better, partly because they just don't seem to care anymore. It's a zero. Shame on them. Wow. That's all I got. Wow. Look at all of this crap in this ring. Uh, you said it perfectly, and in, in my biggest fear is coming true. They might actually be ruining that 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 feud, that angle. The yeah. Daniel Bryan, they're ruining AJ Styles' involvement. It's just so convoluted. It doesn't make sense. It's just like I I hate it. And this is becoming. I don't watch SmackDown Live. I watch it on like a two hour delay because uh, I have to protect my marriage. And I fast forward now through almost all of it, and I'm so unhappy. Qu- quick question on the way out: Is Raw only better because they're trying to boost their ratings for the upcoming TV deal negotiations? No, it's better performers, better storylines, more believable storylines. Um, but is that the reasoning? Is that the reasoning why why after WrestleMania, Vince shake up the roster? And that, no, and- it's Raw is Vince's baby, and, and he saw a couple dudes on SmackDown who were doing well, so he flipped them over to him. And he's like, here, guys, take the New Day. Take Charlotte. You'll be yeah. fine. And, and, that, and they're, they're not. They were p- slow playing this Brian McMahon thing, and it was okay that they were doing it because we were getting ready for them to build up to something. But, I mean, unless it happens at Royal Rumble and it really comes to a head there, and, and Brian gets into fisticuffs with McMahon and like you see something happen, then this slow play is a massive failure. It's repetitive. It's uninspiring. And I'm going to read you the last two sentences I wrote here on that SmackDown recap because WWE has taken its hottest show from a year ago and made it something you can skip on a weekly basis. There's nothing worse than that. Period. There it is. There it is. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. BC number three here. Shayna Baszler made her NXT 
in-ring debut on Wednesday, the same day, by the way, the pictures emerged of Ronda Rousey and Triple H having dinner in California. Her re-debut, let's call it, on NXT included a video of the Performance Center in which Baszler chokes out an unsuspecting woman and then an absolute squash match in the middle of the ring where Baszler did not just break, in kayfabe it seems, someone's arm, but then went after her again with her chokehold. Is Shayna Baszler, BC, a dark horse to win the Women's Royal Rumble and has her intro into the main NXT roster, let's say, been a hero or a zero? I gave a full five-star hero to both comments. Like, this is the introduction, the debut that anybody would want. It's reminiscent to that, you know, pay-per-view rewind segment we did on NXT that time on Kevin Owens' first night with NXT. I had those same type of feels where it was that dramatic of a statement where I think we have to open our eyes to the Royal Rumble where all we're talking about is Rousey right now. Is she going to be in it? Is she going to win it? Maybe Baszler's not long for NXT because I feel like she has a better handle on her gimmick. And sometimes in the women's game where the action can be limited comparison to the men, sometimes if you have a handle on your gimmick, like Paige does, for example, knows her character fully all the way, you can get ahead and be so much more believable. No one's more physically believable than Baszler. She's nasty. But I want to spin this off and ask a question to you, Adam. We assume that when and if Rousey debuts, because it seems imminent now, that Baszler would be by her side because they are MMA training partners, friends, four horsewomen together. But Baszler's a nasty, no-good heel. Rousey has been America's sweetheart. Yes, there's people turned on her after she lost. Yes, she's cocky for being America's sweetheart. But she's a white meat babyface. How is that going to work? I don't know that she's necessarily a baby face, especially if you wind up giving her Paul Heyman like I've been begging for them to do. I think they could be team a team together and Baszler's heel persona would rub off on Rousey. The disrespect, the, the fact that these women don't actually know how to fight and they do. I think that's a pretty cool angle, which is basically Baszler's gimmick right now. Um, so I don't know necessarily that your theory on, on Rousey is what's going to happen. I still think Rousey comes in either wins the Royal Rumble. She has to debut at the Royal Rumble at this point. Like there's like 12 spots open and I don't know who else they're going to put in there. And and they really seem to be teasing it in the media. You don't go to dinner like that unless you want to be seen. And and they obviously did to answer the actual question though, to go back to it, her re her emergence in NXT is a hero, but her being ready to just jump up to the main roster and be a regular part of the women's division, that opinion, I'm going to give that a zero. She is still really rough around the edges as one should expect for someone who's new to professional wrestling. I just don't think she's there yet. I don't think she's ready. All right. I just want to see where her debut aligns with Rousey's debut because I think, like, you kind of have them together. Like, wouldn't Baszler's probably going to be the perfect muscle and bodyguard, and I think she might protect how raw Rousey might be when she first makes her debut. We'll see. We'll see if they'll if they'll be heels. But, you're, you're, by the way, your Paul Heyman thing was genius. And I think I remember I interviewed Heyman a couple years ago. I think he volunteered when I said, who's the next Paul Heyman guy? I think he said, well, maybe it's Ronda Rousey. So, Man, WWE, do that, all right? I know we just got the Balor Club when we, when we, when we didn't think we should have or, or, or deserved. Get, do this now because, man, you want Rousey to work? You're right on, Adam. That's so brilliant. And by the way, you want to you save SmackDown? Put her on SmackDown with Paul Heyman. Oh, oh, wow. More Paul Heyman is the best thing that could happen to WWE. Adam, number four, Hero Zero. WWE reported Tuesday that Samoa Joe out indefinitely with a right foot injury suffered in his Raw victory over Rhino. But in the post-match interview that night on Raw, he 
sort of out of nowhere named Jop John Cena and saying he intends, intends to eliminate him first at the Rumble. So hero to zero to the idea that Monday's injury could railroad suddenly this idea of a Samoa Joe John Cena feud for WrestleMania. You catching those feels? So hero on the assumption of the name drop that you made, hero on a potential John Cena um, Samoa Joe feud heading into WrestleMania, zero on this ruining the plans because from what I think I gathered reading reports online about how long Joe might be out, it may only be six weeks or so. So I think you can easily restart up something with John Cena. Either you keep him off TV, you get him involved in a different program, you have him go over to SmackDown, give that a little shot in the butt um, with some type of feud with someone over there. I don't even know who you would do it with. Um, I don't think that is dead for WrestleMania, assuming it's not a multi-month injury for Samoa Joe, but absolute hero. If that was the direction they were going, man, I mean, you want to talk about finding something for John Cena to do at WrestleMania. Samoa Joe is something for John Cena to do at WrestleMania. So massive hero for me. What and that's about you? so much better than Cena taker. That's so much better than Wait. Cena Goldberg. I'm sorry. It is because it's a match you'd actually want to see rather than just, Hey, what would it look like if Cena and Goldberg were there? You know, it's, it's great. It's a hero. Come on. All right, let's wrap things up. Cody Rhodes started a Twitter avalanche Wednesday by posting, quote, I'm all in September 1st for that massive show that he and the Young Bucks are trying to put on uh, to get, what, 10,000 people in a uh, single, an independent promotion show, let's say. Um, Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks obviously joined in posting their own memes, as did a lot of other guys in the Bullet Club. And Crime then, Time, by the way, JTG. Did you see he posted a meme as well to try to get himself involved well, he, in that? He, like, wants to, he was trying to put himself over and get himself in the show. We'll see if they want JTG in there. Stephen Amell did, though, the Arrow, right? That's who, that's who it is. That guy somehow is now a wrestler. Anyway, Hero Zero BC, to the idea that this show can actually fill 10,000 seats. It's still a, I don't really know. They're going to announce the venue they said on the next being the elite show. And I love the enthusiasm, the revolution, all this. I love that they're essentially booking this and financially funding it themselves, meaning Cody and the Bucks. To fill 10,000 seats, though, we got to be honest. You can't just have a loaded indie card. And supposedly people are thinking because that's the same weekend as the, the biggest pro wrestling gorilla show in, in Los Angeles that they might be you know using some of that talent that same weekend and taking advantage of that. But what I point is this. A loaded card won't get you 10,000. A can't miss dream match main event could get you 10,000. And I think that's what you need. And no, Daniel Bryan will not be out of his WWE contract, or at least we don't think by that point, because I believe we are of the assumption it's late September when it ends. But seriously, you need a Daniel Bryan, CM Punk, something on that level for this to happen. The wild card is maybe Chris Jericho, of course. Could Chris Jericho versus Cody Rhodes in the main event get 10K? No. Probably not, but I don't no. know if we expected Wrestle Kingdom to be that hot with Chris Jericho in it, and it seemed to exceed expectations. But we have an interview coming up with Cody's wife, Brandy Rhodes of Ring of Honor of New Japan Pro Wrestling. We'll have it in a bonus episode early next week. I asked her just a couple hours after Cody started this Twitter storm what she can tell us about this all in. Here's some bonus audio. I can just tell you that I, I think 10,000 seats isn't going to be enough. That's my that's my gut feeling, but <laughs> we we will of course see. Um, I, I think I think it's it's a great time for wrestling fans, and that if if you don't jump at every opportunity to be a part of something really cool and historical, then I don't know, man. I, I I'm all in. 
Are you all in, Brian? Oh, come on. Oh, wow. Yeah, I am all in, by oh, the way, come Adam. On. I don't you, know. You if... always get to make fun of people at the end of audio clips. I'm going to make fun of. Oh, yeah, come on. Oh, yeah. Come on. That, was, that was almost 1993 Vince on commentary level carniness right there out of me. But uh, the point is this. They're going to need a big time main event like Cody Jericho. And you can hear the rest of that interview with Brandy early next week on the In This Corner podcast, talking all things revolution, talking Wags Atlanta, if you're a reality show fan, all that and more. You, won't, you don't want to miss that. So I'm going to give a zero to the concept of it selling 10K. And that's not really anything against these guys. I just don't know what kind of card they're going to put on unless they're getting CM Punk, who I believe is under UFC contract. So they would need to work a deal with Dana White, I would assume, to get him. So, okay, let's say that's that's not happening. You're not going to get Daniel Bryan because he's under WWE contract, we believe, still at that time. So that's not happening. Who are you getting? Because Chris Jericho's not doing it. I mean, I want to see Chris Jericho, but I'm probably not going to go spend $100 to go to a independent show um, and sit probably pretty far away from the ring at that point, you know, if, if I'm not one of the first people buying tickets to see Chris Jericho and I've just watched him for 25 years on TV. Uh, and I'm definitely not watching him against Cody Rhodes. So, and by the way, you can bring Okada and Naito over from Japan too. Probably still not going to go. I mean, I, I would like to see them. And if they happen to be in my town, maybe I would go. But I'm one person. I'm not 10,000 people. So it's a zero for me. Good luck to them. Um, and you know what? I, I, I'm fine with changing my tune as this card gets built. If it becomes a great card, I'm happy to say it's a hero and it might sell 10K. But right now, with the Bullet Club at a show, it's a zero for me. Wow. I predict right now, if Jericho is a part of it, it does do 10K. So take that. Take that, Meltzer. Take that, everybody. That's, that's my bold <laughs> prediction. Hero or Zero is in the books. Adam, it's time for our guest of the week, WWE Hall of Famer and former Raw General Manager Mick Foley. Enjoy. All right. Well, we want to talk to you, Mick, about the 25th anniversary episode of Monday Night Raw, which fans can watch January 22nd, 8, 7 Central on the USA Network. Of course, emanating from two separate locations, Barclays Center in Brooklyn and that original home of the Manhattan Center in NYC. Mick, let me take you back in time here. January 1993, the first Raw episode. You're Cactus Jack in WCW, about to embark on a feud with Big Van Vader. What's the reaction at that time for WWF launching this weekly show? I don't think anyone <laughs> saw it as a huge landmark event, other than it was WWE attempting to, you know, do a little something different. You know, the entire name Raw was meant to, you know, mean, you know, kind of rough and unpolished. And, uh, yeah, I liked the look of the show immediately. I mean, there were some fun aspects to that first show, but I don't think any of us, <laughs> including people in WWE, thought, yeah, this is going to be a keeper. You know, this is going to be around for a couple decades and more. Uh, no question about it. Uh, when you consider the climate at that time, obviously once the Monday Night Wars got going, Raw became a much more valuable vehicle. Uh, what would you say is, let's say, Raw's secret? I mean, ultimately, the same question could be applied to Vince McMahon or the WWE, but the secret to have that kind of longevity for one program where it can become, you know, the longest-rated episodic television show through all the changes of popular culture and how it's consumed? I think there's just something to um, having it there for us uh, through thick and thin uh, without 
uh, off seasons with uh, a very few um, uh, missing shows. You know, for a long time we'd missed two weeks because of the West Christopher Doc show in USA. <laughs> Uh, but that's been rectified. I just think there's something. About, not, I mean, the quality of the show um, is is you know that's notwithstanding because it's they're constantly changing it, constantly making it relevant for the new generation, finding ways to uh, you know to to bring in new fans, keep old fans entertained. Of course, people are you know people are always leaving, always coming, you know, always. New fans are always coming in, old fans are leaving, but you hear from the old fans all the time who love the fact that, hey, you know, I may not watch Raw as much as I used to, but it's great. To, you know, it's still there for you. So when Monday Night Football packs up and goes, you know, for the season, Raw is still there for you. And I think the fact that you have people who are going out of their way to do their very, you know, try their very best to put on the best show they can every week. You know, um, even on Christmas night, <laughs> you know, we were the first show back, back live um, after the, uh, uh, you know, the tragedy of 9-11. It's really important. Mr. McMahon believes wholeheartedly in the importance of entertaining people and taking their minds off problems. And I don't think anyone's done it better than Raw over the last 25 years. No, that's a great point. I got to ask you, though, this year was live on Christmas for the first time. Nobody loves Santa Claus more than Mick Foley. Tell me your phone wasn't ringing. Where's the the, the misconnection here? Why didn't we see you with the suit on? Uh, you, they, they, I think they know, they know better than ask me to leave my house on, uh, on Christmas. You know, <laughs> uh, maybe I could have... Uh, sent in a message from the North Pole, but uh, I felt I really felt that the superstars were out there. Um, but, you know, my son watched four basketball games on uh, TV that day, so if those guys are out there doing their thing, then, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, every once in a while it's, uh, it's, it should be expected that our guys are out there, especially on a, a live TV night. Very, very true. Now, what can fans expect from this 25th anniversary episode? We, we've been told, you know, it's going to be old meeting new. We've already heard guys like Jim Ross, Kevin Nash say they, they are going to be a part, or they hope maybe The Undertaker. Is Mick Foley going to be a part, and what can we expect here? <laughs> well, I definitely, I've definitely been invited. I'm trying to clear uh, a room on the schedule. Uh, but even if I'm not there, I'm there in, in person. I'm there in spirit. And, uh, you know, uh, the, the show has been such a big part of my life, not only for the times that I wrestled on it, but uh, the two stints I had as uh, commissioner and general manager. And, uh, you know, the, my biggest role has been as a fan. So um, I still watch on a regular basis with the family. And uh, if I'm not uh, there live, I'll be glued to all three hours that take place. <laughs> uh, at Barclays and the Manhattan Center. Mick, you mentioned your run as Raw GM most recently, ending in March of 2017. I, I got to give you a high five, give you flying colors here. It, it, it became must-watch, and, and no, no segment was better in my eyes than when you exited, when you were storyline-fired in March of 2017. 
Uh, I thought it was one of the segments of the year when we ended up doing our year-end awards on on the CBS Sports Show here just recently. You're fired by you try to fire Stephanie McMahon. She turns the tables on you. Eventually, you're putting <laughs> Socko on Triple H. Mick, the crowd was red hot as Seth Rollins comes in to save you. What do you remember about that segment? Because you know, for recent memory, that's about as good as it gets there on the Red Brand. Yeah, I, I loved it. I mean, um, you know, when you take that role. <laughs> Uh, that especially if, if a lot of emphasis is going to be placed on your character, that it's fairly short-lived. You know, you're working with a combustible on-air personality like uh, Stephanie. Uh, you you know that uh, an on-air firing is for a uh, raw GM what uh, an on-air death is for a soap opera actor. <laughs> like, it's just inevitable. And so I just went you know, in with the attitude that we were going to try to, you know, try to benefit the show for, uh, uh, change the show for the better, and that I was going to try to get involved in some storylines and try to, you know, raise the profiles of a few people while I was there. And then I wanted to be fired in spectacular fashion, and uh, that was a dream firing. It was uh, one of the best segments I've ever been involved in. You know, and they had that, and, uh, and then. Uh, yeah, yeah, especially the week before um the week the week before um I was fired was uh, when I suggested Stephanie leave and uh you know we uh and that yeah, the interaction with Triple H and the sock and then the next week was more of a formality. But they were both they were both great moments for me. But uh it's strange to say that being fired by Stephanie McMahon was one of my great moments on Raw, but uh it was. I felt afterwards like I just had a huge pay-per-view match. Like, it was the most excited I'd been after a show in many years. Yeah, th- there was some some kind of juice in the air for that segment. It felt Attitude Era seeing you and Triple H, of course, go back and forth. So, Mick, you're a veteran, obviously, of, of many eras, being in the Attitude Era, ECW, death matches in Japan, all the way through to being a part of this current PG product at times. So, for 2018... For your taste as a wrestling fan, if you were running the show in a major promotion, what's the best mix? You know, whether it's PG, PG-13, rebooting sort of almost an R-rated feel of the late 90s. For today's day and age, what's the best type of wrestling you'd like to see? Oh, the the best type of wrestling I'd like to see? You know, the overall package, um, the I entertainment, think, all that. I think... Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with uh, the current product. Um... I think three hours is really difficult to deliver on. And, uh, you know, somebody almost yelled at me at an airport saying, I'll tell you what the problem with Raw is. <laughs> I said, oh, no. He goes, you can't have a three-hour show without the Miz. <laughs> and, uh, and it points out how important some of these characters are, like in, you know, just the, the sheer entertainment factor that uh, some of these guys it's difficult to do a three-hour show and make it compelling and exciting for 180 minutes. Um, but I, I think that the superstars have stepped up. I think, you know, we tend, as wrestling fans, to take things for granted. And, uh, you know, when I see a show where guys are busting their butts and, uh, you know, you see three very good matches and possibly one great match, I'm happy, you know. Um, I know how much work goes into putting on the best show possible. 
there are other options for people who are not WWE fans, but when it comes to putting on a three-hour <laughs> variety show live for, you know, uh, every week without an off-season, I don't think you can knock the efforts uh, of WWE uh, or, the, uh, or the execution. And certainly, Mick, the uh, the rent gets raised on Raw anytime Mr. McMahon makes an appearance, you know, or the rare times on SmackDown Live. You know, just the electricity goes through the air. The It seem, seems to become contagious when you're watching that everyone else steps up. So I'm sure you saw Vince this past year on SmackDown Live getting busted open against Kevin Owens. It was one of the moments of the year. How do you compare his intensity as a performer and being across from him in a segment or a match to anyone else you've ever worked with? Well, Vince's intensity isn't just as a performer. <laughs> you know, it's, I think it's with him 24-7. It's what he brings to every meeting, every phone call, uh, every handshake, every behind-the-scenes you know, talk with a superstar. So I wouldn't say he's the most intense performer to look at across the screen, although he's always, you know, he's, he is 100% uh, intent on delivering the most exciting most entertaining segment he possibly can. And when you have that type of uh, uh, leadership, it, uh, you know, it works its way down. When you see the boss being <laughs> willing to go to extremes to entertain his fan base. And when I say extremes, it's not just the headbutt from Kevin Owens. It's, uh, you know, wetting his pants uh, during a classic episode of Raw. Like, <laughs> if the boss will, will, is willing to have poop falling in from the sky and willing to wet his pants, then you know that you as performers have to be just as selfless and be willing to do whatever it takes to entertain uh, the audience. No question about it. Uh, Mick, anytime people get a chance to interview a legend, they always throw out the Mount Rushmore conversation, and it's inevitably the the same guy, so I'm not going to go there. But you've been in the locker room. You've worked on Raw the last couple years. You get to know a lot of these top talent today. Are there a group of guys that you look at and say, okay, 10, 15 years from now, these are the guys that are going to enter those same Mount Rushmore conversations with Rock and Hogan and Flair and all of that. Who are the guys from today that you are just most impressed with and what they're doing out there? Well, I think when it comes to the post-attitude era, John Cena certainly has to be on that that wall. And then uh, you see guys who are just performing on a – sometimes you don't appreciate – someone to take a step away and look at the you know the entirety of their their contribution and you just go wow like is AJ Styles really doing this you know on a weekly basis uh Kevin Owens I know I'm talking about you guys are on Smackdown now but Kevin to me was a raw guy since he was a raw guy when I was there and guys are just going all out to do the best they can you know every week you know whether it's uh you know, Cesaro and Sheamus, you know, being dealt what they thought was a bad hand by being teamed up and turning into one of the highlights of the year. Uh, to some of the, you know, to someone like The Miz, who comes over from SmackDown, you know, and continues to excel, continues to make uh, every episode he does must-see. Or someone like Elias, who, you know, finds his way into a character and, uh, you know, and, and allows us to watch the evolution of that character on a weekly basis. So there's always somebody picking up the uh, the ball and running with it. 
Mick, you were succeeded on Raw by Kurt Angle as GM. He's been entwined in this really good storyline over the past year with his on-screen son, Jason Jordan. And you talk about guys who are stepping up when given the ball. Now all we're talking about is Jason Jordan and his potential. I wanted to know, A, if you saw that, your time there, and B, are you on board with these comparisons where it's like we may have a young rock in the making? And I know that's that that's bold, but it's sometimes tied into more of how Rocky Mayavia was received and how Jason Jordan's getting received now. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, the, the rock comparison might not be fair to anyone, but uh, Jason is certainly one of the most enjoyable guys. I mean, you hear me laughing doing it. I mean, no one audibly uh, screams due to an injury like Jason. And it's almost like he is almost screaming the words, look at me fighting my way through this injury. Admire, admire me for my fortitude. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of potential there. And this is one of those storylines, you know, that people scoffed at at first and uh, that is really picking up momentum and could lead uh, to some interesting places. So, you know, you take a guy like Jason, uh, throw in an Elias who's picking up steam, throw in a guy like Drew Gulak, who is just good television and a great counterpoint to the more flamboyant Enzo Amore. And, uh, you know, and the steadiness of The Miz and then the great wrestling, which I think is a constant. And, uh, and all of a sudden the three hours isn't as insurmountable as it may have seemed. Not a bad point. Uh, Mick, your counter GM on SmackDown was Daniel Bryan. He still holds the position. In every interview, really for the last two years, he's sort of hinting that if I can get cleared, I want to return to a WWE ring. And if I can't, I may return somewhere else. You know the physical toll this job takes. I'm sure you know that itch when you're you know retired of wanting to get back in there just the same. If he sought your advice, what, what would you give him at this point in his career for his situation? Uh-huh. Well, I told him years ago that once he got, once he was as thoroughly beloved uh, as he was, that he didn't have to do as much on a nightly basis. Um, that he could stay away from some of the things that were most likely to lead to injury. So, no, no doubt in my mind that Daniel, if given a chance, could have some great matches. I just hope he makes some, you know, sparing appearances and. I would like to see him have one last great moment on Raw, and he can, you know, wrestle in a wise way that's not going to put him in any danger. And, uh, and you know, it'd be nice if fans lowered the expectations, too, and just accepted that it'd be nice to have uh, a beloved character back in the ring, even if it's just for one big moment. Do you think there's sure? Do you think there's a Mick Foley blueprint there for him to follow in that same regard? Uh, not really, because. Um, you know, I was already, you know, I'd already had my, a great run and uh, done everything I wanted to and more, whereas, you know, Brian's injury came, Daniel's injury came right in the prime of his career. So he's, he's looking at a different scenario, and I don't think he could come back and do, like, the three-year plan that I did, you know, where you have ten matches over three years. Um, I, it all depends. I don't know what his condition is. I don't know what the doctors are saying, but... Um, you know, I hope in the end he understands that he's a guy with a long life ahead of him, a wife and a child, and that he needs to make the best decision um, for everyone, not just himself. Mick Foley, it was a pleasure to talk to you. The Raw 25th anniversary is January 22nd. The USA Network, 8, 7 Central. 
Tickets are available for the shows. Barclays Center in Brooklyn, the Manhattan Center in New York. Mick, thanks so much for your time. Looking back, looking forward, all that in between. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good talk there with the uh, the faces of Foley, Adam, although we only we only got one face out of there. We got a very jovial, laughing, almost Santa Claus Foley, but uh, some good stuff about Raw 25. But, you know, the juice there was Daniel Bryan. Yeah, um, I think what Mick said is kind of how most people should feel. I mean, anyone that expects Daniel Bryan to come back to a full schedule, even if he's fully medically cleared, I mean, you're probably kidding yourself at this point. Um, I think he's even said personally that he wants to find a way to wrestle with lower impact and to make an impact and have a lighter schedule because he has a family now. There's, these are things he did not have two or three years ago. So I think Mick's advice is very good. Obviously, he doesn't know his medical diagnosis or anything. Whether Daniel Bryan comes back in WWE or not, I mean, he really should not be wrestling a ton. This is a life or not. I don't want to say life or death situation, but it's a health situation. And you've got to take your health seriously, especially if you're an athlete. I didn't realize how similar their paths were until I was talking to Mick. Like, well, you know, while asking about it and hearing his comments, it's like I almost forgot that Mick had that long stretch where he was retired from the ring where there were, you know, scares for his own health in terms of the damage he took and the 78 straight chair shots from The Rock and all that stuff. And, yeah, it, maybe it is a blueprint on how you come back and how you lower the, the impact. Although, let's be honest, Mick did come back and have that hellacious match with Edge. You know, he, he poured yeah. out what, whatever was left in the jar at WrestleMania 22. But I liked him laughing about Jason Jordan. And one thing about Raw 25, we're going to preview that, uh, you know. But if you're going to have Mick Foley talk to me about Raw 25, at least have him confirm for the show. He's like, yeah, I probably won't be there, but I'll be there in spirit. Come on, WWE, you're better than that. Come on. Mick's going to be at the show. He, it's, they're one of the na- He's one of the names they did not mention, so I guess they don't want it to be a surprise. But you would think if they're having him do interviews, it's pretty obvious he's going to be there. Um, I don't want to gloss over real quick that Jason Jordan rock thing that he laughed at. I don't think, and, and I'm going to give a, us a break here on the In This Corner podcast, I don't think he understood that the comparison we were making was to Rocky Maivia, not necessarily The Rock, um, but that's fine. I mean, I think it's fair to say that he sees, just like Kurt Angle did, he sees a lot of talent and a lot of ability in Jason Jordan. And he loves my guys, Elias and Drew Gulak. So I mean, he, he was did. about to put Elias on the Mount Rushmore. So I, you know, I'm not sure if he understood <laughs> that question either, but I was down for that answer. Uh, it's for the people, by the people on the show. So it's time to slide into the DMs. All right, BC, let's kick it off from, oh, man, D. Mitty Brand 78. Oh, come on. You don't mean no man. He, you don't mean... he tries to put himself over on Twitter again to us after we give him a shout-out on the year-end edition. All right, here's his DM slide. Is it just me, or is the mixed match challenge stupid? Complete disregard for kayfabe in what is a televised WWE show. I can take it when it's for charity. And they are helping kids with bullying and cancer, but the complete disregard, by the way, just glossing over helping kids with bullying and cancer. <laughs> uh, they're helping kids with bullying and cancer, but the complete disregard for characters, especially heels, is a slap in the face to wrestling fans, young and old. What do you think, BC? Well, this will debut January 16th, which is next Tuesday, in the former slot occupied by 205 Live after SmackDown will be on Facebook. It's hard to obviously know what we're getting into until we see the first episode. I don't have a lot of excitement for this. I feel like it feels gimmicky. It feels like it's going to exist outside of the world of WWE storyline. So I'm, my question to them is, how are you going to make me care about it if so? Is it going to be so fun and so unique that I'll be dialed in? Or is it not for me, hardcore wrestling fan? Is it for a whole new market and audience? That's an interesting question. D. Mitty Brand, the heel from Australia, his point was more about the breaking kayfabe 
if it does exist outside of the realm of WWE, Adam, I won't be that upset about breaking kayfabe because I'll just say this show is what it is and I probably won't watch it. If it is, though, an extension of regular WWE programming, it could get messy. But you know what? Kayfabe and WWE between men and women, even on TV, the heels don't always associate with the heels. The faces don't always associate with the faces. A lot of times they do, but there's always been that crossover. In this case, I don't think it's breaking kayfabe as much as it's so much as just ignoring it. Like he's, to give him credit, disregarding it. And I think that's okay because they're catering to a totally different audience on Facebook. I think it's going to be fun. The teams are pretty damn good. I don't have the list in front of me right now, but they're it's outside of Natalia Goldust. The teams are all really unique and interesting. And I'm excited to watch this. Like there's, they put quality wrestlers in. This is not the C squad. These are A and B talents that are in this you know show or whatever you want to call it. I think it's going to be short, 30 to 60 minutes. I'm not sure how long. And it's going to be, I think, pure wrestling. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Well, if they don't do the full comedic rock MTV rock and jock vibe, then have hellacious short matches. Have like cruiserweight classic type moves and, and creepy. Okay, not you know swan dives into the crowd, but have you know have it be a high energy event. Maybe it wins us over. We'll see. I, I forgot who Braun Strowman's partner is, but like if he just takes her and chucks her across the ring into the other woman. And that's a pinfall. Hey, well, that's going to be awesome. Isn't his partner Nia Jax? I'm not sure if he... No, come oh, on. I, she's no, not no, like most girls. Really? But come on. You know. is, I, it, is it Nia Jax? I'm is not that even... I, see, I haven't been down. The only, the, there's been a lot of videos announcing who's who. The only video I love, by the way, was Sami Zayn and Becky Lynch. That's and I know that is what Mitty was mad about. But uh, that, was a, that was a pretty entertaining video to release. Though. All right, BC. Let's move on. Number two from Dev J. Baker. Hey, BC, if there was a Survivor WWE edition, who do you think would win? So I love this question because I love CBS's own Survivor and uh, love treating it like a real sporting event, like it's, like it's an actual sport, like historically. And the answer is Vince McMahon. Okay, let's be really honest, all right? At, at any age, and obviously the odds would be against him. Who's going to help and vote for a billionaire to win more money and do this? But nobody is grimier and more manipulative and could play the role that he needed to play socially to pull that off. Vince McMahon would be the last man standing, as he is in the wrestling business. That is such an awful answer. Anyone who watches MTV's The Challenge, I have always equated this guy to Johnny Bananas on The Challenge. And not for necessarily great reasons, but there's just the the mix of athleticism, guile, entertainment. The answer is Triple H. Triple H would win. He would throw Vince off that island so damn fast. (laughs) Forget that he's his father-in-law. Vince is gone real quick. He's not going to be able to survive those harsh nights. Triple H perseveres like he always does and buries as much so, young talent as he possibly can. You might be right because I'm think probably in my mind I'm envisioning like corporate Vince who's not that far removed from Trailer Park Vince in North Carolina, and you're like, no, you're this guy's 72 years old and he's eating caviar. Right. Like this guy's not going to sleep outside. So maybe I completely mailed in that answer, but you know, all right, the Miz. All right, the Miz is going to win it because by the way, the Miz is a reality show veteran. Miz is good, too. Actually, you know, Miz is probably the best answer possible, and I think Seth Rollins would be a good answer as well. All right, number three from Adam X. Parsons. Guys, why hasn't the Revival been featured on Raw since they returned on December 18th? Now that they're both healthy, WWE is wasting their most talented tag team for no reason whatsoever. Yeah, I don't have a real answer here based on any injury or, or, or specific booking. It seems like they're just delaying the launch of whatever their feud will be and you hope it's a good one as we build toward Rumble and Mania. I wonder, though, at how sort of last minute the Balor Club was thrown together, and it seemed to be a reaction for toward Finn not getting 
you know, good booking, and then is he over and all this stuff, and it seemed like sort of a makeshift, let's make the fans happy, let's make Finn happy, and I think that took the potential for the Good Brothers out of it. I also wonder if WWE last minute allowed this Rollins-Reigns-Ambrose versus the Bar feud, which is basically they wrestle each other every night on Raw. That's what the feud is, every week for three months, okay? So, like, or three months, I mean 36 months, okay? I think uh, maybe they're just delaying the start, but the Revival, I think, are so character and promo-wise perfectly built for Raw, even though they're smaller than the average bear on Raw, right? They're, they're a little bit more indie NXT size. I just think they have that old-school quality and swagger where they're going to do great things on Raw. So you know what? Maybe you put them in a program with the bar without the belts because the bar are sort of ambiguous where they have a heel and a baby face together. They're so over in terms of how they can wrestle. And if you turn them back face, that's a perfect feud in terms of putting over the pure healness of the revival hopefully we're doing something like that rather than just not using them yeah for me uh, raw right now is not focused on real tag teams i mean sheamus and cesaro you can say they're a real team because they have been together for so long but they're still sheamus and cesaro like gallows and anderson are are a real team you know sheamus and cesaro are two singles wrestlers who have been together and have been doing great whereas on smackdown you actually have legitimate tag teams competing and that that's why you have one of the strongest divisions of tag team wrestling we've seen in WWE in years. The Revival are, would be better on SmackDown. I also think while they're a good tag team, you call them the most talented tag team in WWE, they're not. Um, I think what we saw from them in NXT was awesome, and a lot of things happen in NXT that make us think wrestlers and performers and storylines and characters are better than they actually are. And I'm not saying they're not good. The Revival is very, very good. But on Monday Night Raw, they don't necessarily fit in to what's going on there as much as they might on SmackDown or as much as they did in NXT. So the answer to your question is very simple. In my opinion, they don't have a storyline for them and I don't know when they're going to. So that's it for me. Let's move on to number four from Brian Napier at it's Napes. He says, BC based upon what happened at new year's dash. And again, for those uh, uninitiated, that's the raw after WrestleMania version of NJPW show after wrestle kingdom. Do you think a Kenny Omega breakup from the bullet club? possibly before heading to WWE at some point could be the second greatest story ever told in professional wrestling. And I think he's referring to the mega powers exploding as the best one ever. When you take in the fact that they could have carte blanche to tell the story on being in the elite, plus the power of WWE programming, BC, do you agree with Brian Napier? So to a little backstory, uh, Brian Napson at its Napes and I've been doing uh, lengthy DM slides because he came to me, he said, BC, you talk about the greatest story ever told the, the mega powers all the time on your podcast. What's the backstory? What's its history? I got so fired up. I sent him like 18 consecutive YouTube links, basically the entire two, you know, year and a half run of that storyline with with a breakdown on why it was awesome. We both marked out. And he's got an interesting points and questions here. One, they've already sort of told the story on being in the lead, about the being the lead most recent episode. And for anybody that didn't see New Year Dash, here's what happened: Kota Ibushi was was held back by the Bullet Club with with Cody Rhodes running the show, and they were about to hit him with a chair. Kenny Omega, who had already had a match and was backstage, came running in at the last minute to save Kota, his former tag team partner in Japan's promotion DDT, who we thought they were going to feud against each other until Jericho came in to take that spot. That really seemed to break up what's going on in the Bullet Club right now, specifically between Kenny and Cody. They pushed each other violently. They really, really teased the bag that they may explode. It got it really excited. Could that be 
you know, a, a softer new age version of the of the Mega Power Explode? Absolutely. And I think it could do big things. I don't think it'll happen in WWE, though, because, Adam, as you sent me the link from Dave Meltzer reporting this week, that Kenny Omega is now signed with New Japan through January 2019. So you're going to have to hold off on that. But I want to spring this back to you and ask this, Adam. I just said the only way the all-in show could break 10K or whatever is if Jericho is involved. What if Kenny Omega leaves the Bullet Club and challenges Cody Rhodes in a Mega Powers Explode S-type feud, and it is done right on being the elite, which is a great way to to sort of tell the inside of what's going on in a story. Could that get them to 10K? No. Wow. <laughs> I mean, no, it, no, it can't. And to answer the DM question more specifically, this wouldn't be a top 10 storyline of all time, let alone the second best ever two Mega Powers exploding. I mean, have you heard of the NWO? I mean, did you see... Hulk Hogan turn heel? What was that? Bash of the Beach? I don't even remember the pay-per-view. I mean... Don't say you didn't remember. That's sacrilege. Of course it was Bash of the Beach. Come on. Okay, Bash of the Beach. Um, No, I mean, not the second greatest storyline ever. Could it be great? Could it be WWE's best storyline in years? Yeah. I mean, probably. I think it would be pretty cool. You'd have a lot of smart fans really excited. But don't forget, people still don't know who the Bullet Club are. Like, like we do. Everyone listening to this podcast does because we talk about them. We're hardcore professional wrestling fans, but WWE's core audience remains kids and adults who just watch their product and are not familiar with this group. So while it would have a lot of excitement and the hardcore fans would mark out for it, especially if it happened, perhaps the first entrance in Brooklyn or Philly or Chicago or L.A., places where people, you know, there's a ton of hardcore fans and they really know what's going on and that response would then make it huge inside of WWE. Let's not compare this to Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage or Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, and Scott Hall. Here we go. Anti-Bullet Club uh, no, Silver King is back. Anti-Bullet Club. It, it, it's actually having an idea of where they are placed right now in professional wrestling. <laughs> and where they are is they're basically an independent faction into their own in NJPW and Ring of Honor, and they're great but they don't have the same carte blanche as the biggest names in professional wrestling, and therefore the angle can't be one of the biggest angles in professional wrestling. No, it would be second best. I just want to catch feels. Just let me catch some feels from that. Maybe it'll fill 10K. That would be cool. It would be cool. But by the way, Cody and Kenny Omega would sell probably worse or equal to Cody and Chris Jericho at that show. I mean, oh, it's how not dare gonna... you? There's many, many, many more independent fans than we even realize. Right in the feel spot to close the show, we put our hands right inside there, and uh, we'll disclaimer... By saying if there are any Impact Wrestling fans out there that do not want to hear about spoilers, then fast forward about 30 seconds starting now. I don't think that was any of you. News broke this week, Adam, that former WWE Cruiserweight Austin Aries made his return to Impact Wrestling and won the top belt, the heavyweight championship at a recent tapings. This is right in the field spot for me because I miss this guy a lot. And while I no longer watch a ton or really much of Impact Wrestling since Matt Hardy left, since really, you know, Cody left uh, six months ago, Austin Aries to me is someone who has a lot left to give. Him coming right back in and being at the top, I might go out of my way to watch this because I felt this was the untapped talent at WWE. I thought his run with Neville was one of the better feuds of the past year and one of the high spots of that Cruiserweight division. And the fact that WWE said goodbye to him, and again, we don't know the behind the scenes. We don't know if he's difficult to work with. We don't know any of that. Considering what he can do on the mic as an announcer, as a wrestler still at age 40, this was right in the field spot for me because I like this guy. I'm cheering for this guy. I want to see this guy do good things. Yeah, I think I'm definitely going to tune into it. I don't know that 
it's a feel spot moment for me, but it definitely has me interested to see, hey, what happened? And, you know, are they going to be using this guy in a real way? For me, you know, BC, I put myself over in the open of this show in an ode to Handsome Nick kind of joking around. But I'm really going to put myself over here in the field spot because not only was I in Atlanta this weekend to cover the college football playoff, there were a lot of celebrities around. I got to see Heinz Ward, Thomas Dimitrioff, the Atlanta Falcons GM. There's cool people all walking around. And then I got word, and those of you that do follow me on Twitter at Silverstein Adam found out that I found out Ric Flair was in the house of the national championship game. And I made it a point to find the nature boy and shake his hand and say hello. It was a lot easier than I thought it would be. Had some field access to the game, went over to where he was, said, hey, Rick, big fan, would love to shake your hand. Stood up, looked great, was really, really excited to see just how healthy he looked. If you saw him on WWE TV recently in pictures of him on Twitter, he kind of looked thin and frail coming out of that surgery. Full body weight again, big smile on his face, spry laughing. I shook his hand. I, ex- I expected a five-second conversation. Kept me there for like 35 seconds to a minute. Had a nice quick chat. Woo! It was great to meet the Nature Boy finally. Glad he's in much better health. Talk about a feel spot yes. moment. Feel spot moment. Activated right there. I mean, that that's ultimate feel spot. And everybody check out the, the, the photo on Adam's Twitter account because it's classic. It's frameable. And I say this like this. Yeah. Look, we're in a blessed spot where we get to be journalists of something that we love. We get to go to the big events. There's times we get to go backstage, shake hands, interview these guys. Eventually, you become desensitized to a certain degree, and you act professional, of course, and meeting a guy becomes an experience. It's fun, but it doesn't you know, necessarily activate those next-level feels. I'll say this. Meeting Flair involuntarily does that to you, obviously, because this is almost a godlike level of, of a pro wrestling hero. And it just there's just energy around Flair when you do meet him that uh, right away I started doing the the Flair, you know, sort of strut without even planning or professionally wanting to. You know, the first time that I got to shake his hand, considering what he went through just recently, that's a great moment to see him back. You getting to be there big all the way. That's the key. I mean, like we do this professionally. We are journalists and you don't really go out of your way to meet people. You kind of just hope it happens. And if it does, it's cool. And. You know, you say hello, and then you kind of say to yourself, oh, wow, I just meet, met Ric Flair. That was really cool. Given the situation with his health recently, given the fact that I had never met him before, and I was at that game in that moment, you know, you take that little extra, and you say, you know what, I'm going to take a five-minute break from my job. I'm going to walk right over to where the, the nature boy, the greatest <laughs> professional wrestler of all time, potentially, is sitting and see if he'll shake my hand for a minute. Um, it was really cool to meet him. It was a really cool experience. Glad I got to be there, and glad I got to share it. With all you guys. I say this as I'm staring at a framed picture of me shaking Hulk Hogan's hand from 2011 in the green room at ESPN. So, yeah, there's some guys that are just sort of, it's, Dwarf. you know, yeah. a next level opportunity. Another loaded show in the books. The great, the handsome, the Greek, the passionate Nick Costos will be back in the coming weeks. But we certainly held down the fort this time. Special thanks to Mick Foley. Check out that Raw 25 episode on January 22nd. Adam, we have a bonus interview podcast next week that is going to be hard-hitting. Brandy Rhodes, Samoa Joe, a can't-miss opportunity altogether. You can follow me on Twitter at BCampbellCBS. Follow Adam at SilversteinAdam at the Costos. Hey, follow our Twitter account for the show at In This Corner CBS BC. Finally, remembering to share that. Give us that five-star review. Subscribe, all the good stuff you can do. Look, it only takes a minute, all right? You just sat here with us for an hour and a half. You can take your minute. Adam, we always like to greet, you know, say our best, say goodbye. So do you have two words for the people here on the way out of this show by any chance? We out. <laughs>